listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Hi, Douglas, are you there? Hello, Sherry. There you are, yay! Now, I understand you could hear me, but we couldn't hear you. So now we have you live on the air at uh, Drishti Point Radio on CFRO 100.5 FM, and we are so pleased to be speaking with you again. I was just saying before our, our little technical glitch there that you had been here a few months ago to teach a fascinating workshop on the meditative practice of shamatha. Um, but I don't think all our listeners today were able to catch that. So I'm hoping that you can enlighten us on what exactly shamatha is. I'd be delighted to try. Uh, shamatha <laughs> is Sanskrit, is a Sanskrit term meaning quiescence. So all of, there are many contemplative traditions, uh, throughout our, our culture. And all of these have some practices for developing this quiescence or stillness of the mind. So what is this quiescence that we're talking about? I think of it actually as a um, sweet spot of our moment-to-moment attention. So when our untrained mind uh, is operating on the world to create the world, it actually is oscillating continually between what uh, are these terms in shamatha, shamatha called agitation and dullness or it's restlessness and boredom. So all of these different meditative traditions have created some techniques uh, to enhance stability and the vividness of the image to keep it from going off either into excitation or falling asleep into drowsiness. Mm. So in the Buddhist tradition, um, this body of techniques is called shamatha. And it's a progression of techniques that develops your ability to keep your attention uh, through familiar stages of progress, beginning at a point where you are just identifying your object that you would like to place your attention on, which uh, typically would be the physical sensations of the breath, and only being able to keep your attention on that for a moment or two before it skips off either into excitation or you fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be the, the stage one. That would be our default condition uh, that we come to practice shamatha with. And then we can develop this, actually, our ability to sustain attention through ten stages to the point where we are able to keep our attention effortlessly on a chosen object with perfect stability and perfect vividness for up to four hours. So that's the entire arc of the shamatha path. And this actually, the, um, the one of the greatest texts of all that describes this arc of experience uh, was developed by Master Kamala Shila at Nalanda University in 8th century northern India. And so this is the, the text that... Uh, it's the basic framework for describing this arc from zero mindfulness to perfect mindfulness. And the ten stages then uh, along the way describe landmarks, things to watch for, uh, and gives us guidelines for um, what to expect and the antidotes when typical problems 
uh, arise at that particular point. So in the, the shamatha tradition, uh, Master Kamala Shila's text, Stages of Meditation or Bhavana Kramana in Sanskrit, is the, the greatest roadmap for how to get from stage one to stage ten, and that's what we'll be using. It's um, what I, I based my instruction on when I was in Vancouver in October, and then uh, that's what we'll be doing again uh, when I return. Great. And you're coming back uh, next month, aren't you, to lead a full shamatha retreat? Yes, I am, and uh, I'm very excited about that. Great. Uh, so shamatha, then, as I understand it, is a step-by-step progression of these meditative techniques uh, for training, as you said, our uh, the excitation of the mind, or the, the two extremes, I guess, excitation and drowsy, to be able to be perfectly attentive to the present moment, moment-by-moment experience, and that there are these logical steps or these practical steps that one can learn. It uh, sounds like quite, quite a complicated and detailed methodology, but is this different from just what normally we would consider to be... Well, I guess we should define what meditation is in general, Is because from what I understand from the yogic text, they don't define meditation as meditation until we've reached this final phase that you were explaining where we can hold our attention for up to four hours. So how is the shamatha different from meditation, or is this the process by which we get there? Or perhaps you could speak to that a little bit more for us. Well, uh, meditation in general is a, a generic term, I think, you could describe as an incremental and step-by-step development of practices within a framework that are all uh, based in mindfulness, where attention is based on mindfulness on a particular practice. So within uh, there are the contemplative traditions, there are meditative traditions uh, in Christianity, in uh, Sufi traditions, uh, but the really, uh, and the yogic traditions, of course, but uh, this is really, really well-developed within the Buddhist traditions, mm-hmm. and so there are many different forms of meditation, even within the Buddhist tradition, and some of them uh, use very different techniques. So there's, uh, for instance, Vajrayana, which employs uh, richly detailed visualizations and uh, reliance on thousands of mantra recitations. Uh, there's the uh, Lam Rim tradition, also within Mahayana Buddhism, that is uh, very analytic and uh, rigorously logical. Um, and then there's the mindfulness-based um, traditions, um, for instance, uh, contemporary mindfulness-based stress reduction of John Kabat-Zinn's uh, approach, mm-hmm. and Vipassana. And uh, so shamatha is one of those. Within this whole body of meditation practices, shamatha is a subset of those practices. Um, but one could say, actually, that of this whole body of meditative practices, that shamatha is the most important of okay. all meditation practices. Because what we're doing in shamatha is developing the basic skill of placing the mind on an object and being able to keep it there uh, voluntarily for a period of time with continuity without 
falling asleep, becoming drowsy, or becoming dull. Uh, and this is a, a very uh, important technique for all types of meditation. Um, you could think of um, our untrained mind, actually, as being illiterate, being unable to read. <laughs> someone who, who doesn't know how to read or someone who doesn't have shamatha can still navigate the world uh, and without revealing their deficit. But uh, when you learn to read, all of a sudden a whole new world opens to you and you begin to have some choice about what you would like to learn. Uh, this ability then is, you know, of, of developing shamatha or quiescence um, has always been regarded as the foundation for all meditation progress. The beginning, uh, Lord Buddha himself said that, and it's just uh, all throughout the Tibetan literature, it's um, described as absolutely necessary for success of any of the other practices. So, for instance, I'm uh, always uh, reminded of something that uh, one of my great heroes, Pabanka Rinpoche, said in the Lamrim at the very end when he gets to discussing quiescence. Mm -hmm. He says that without quiescence, practitioners can't generate any of the great realizations of the entire previous three volumes. So oh that this whole cookbook of realizations, and he says, forget it. Right. You're not going to be able to achieve any of this stuff if you don't start with a foundation of uh, quiescence or shamatha. Something also has always stuck in my mind uh, from Master Shantideva, who's the, the great author of Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Uh, he said, um, quote, the omniscient one declared as useless all recitation and austerities that are done with a distracted or a dull mind, hmm. even if practiced for a long time. <laughs> so we could be wasting our time with a distracted or a dull mind, I see. Exactly. Well, those are obvious benefits of the shamatha practice, um, and obviously in our, our modern-day health and wellness knowledge, just even general meditation or quieting of the mind is seen as being able to provide great, great benefits. I think that a lot of people, though, when they are first trying out meditation, find this idea of quieting our mind, quieting that soundtrack to be quite daunting, regardless of whether we know that it's good for us or not. Is this something that's possible, even if you are starting from zero as a meditator? Yes, it's very possible, and it's actually not difficult to do. The good news is that you don't have to be able to sit in lotus posture. <laughs> and this is a, I think a lot of people just have a, an impression that somehow meditation is a very ritualistic form that uh, you need to, to acquire a bunch of things in order to do. Right. Um, but this is not the case at all. In fact, one of the techniques that... Um, I'll be teaching is that you can sit in a chair while you're meditating or that you it's also very powerful to especially in the early phases when you're uh, developing remedial relaxation uh, to actually begin meditating in the uh, yogic posture of shavasana in the supine position on your back hmm. so this is um, actually for people who feel like they are uh, overwhelmed by the thought of taking up meditation, that it's something beyond them. Uh, one of the most important things to realize is that it all starts with relaxation. 
and everyone should welcome a little more of that in their lives. Yes. So the the you know we have this impression that um, somehow concentration requires a furrowed brow, and that we have this uh, impression of concentration as something that air traffic controllers or radar operators do, and and this this frankly is the way that concentration is taught in our educational systems right. and in the workplace. And there, so the, the interesting and very important thing to discover is that that type of concentration leads only to tension, fatigue, and ulcers, rather to, than to the type of single-pointed focus that we need for real meditation. Mm. So to focus our attention well, we have to be profoundly relaxed. And we develop that uh, relaxation by focusing, first of all, on physical sensations of the body and releasing all tension, mental and physical. So this relaxation is not itself a meditation. Um, and we, to prove that to ourselves, all we need to do is realize that every night we relax and, we, and this relaxation leads us to sleep. So what shamatha teaches us is that we need to break that habitual association of relaxation and drowsiness. Mm. So instead of doing, instead of falling asleep when we're relaxed, what we do is in bring bright clarity of our attention to this relaxation, and we balance this. The first thing that we learn is to balance relaxation and clarity and realize how important that is as a foundation for our ability to concentrate well. So normally in this society, uh, we're taught that when our attention is aroused, our bodies and minds become tense, like the air traffic controller, Mm -hmm. or that when we relax, our minds become drowsy, like they do every night before we fall asleep. So these contemplative practices of shamatha are the only place in all of our culture where it's taught that the deeper you go in your concentration, the deeper your relaxation has to be. So anybody who wants to take up meditation should be uh, relieved to hear that relaxation is the foundation of it all. I love that. I'm Sherry Kajawara, and you're listening to Drishti Point on Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. We're back with Douglas Veenhoff, who has studied and practiced Buddhism for more than 20 years. He graduated with honors from the seven-year program Advanced Buddhist Studies at Diamond Mountain in Arizona, founded by Geshe Michael Roach and Lama Christie McNally, and he's currently working on a new book examining his own spiritual experiences in light of contemporary theories of consciousness. Doug, we've been talking a bit about shamatha, but I also want to um, cast our mind back to the last time you were in Vancouver for our, the uh, benefit of some of our new listeners today. In addition to your workshop on shamatha, you also gave a wonderful public talk called the Three-Step Dance of Realizations, where you gave us a very concise explanation of how new discoveries in neuroscience were validating things that meditators have been exploring for over 2,000 years. Could you remind us of what the Three-Step Dance is and how shamatha might fit into that whole ideology? Sure. Uh, There are some new discoveries in neuroscience that really confirm something that Buddhists have been and meditators have been talking about uh, for 2,500 years. And this is this idea that 
we actually co-create the universe of our perceptions during the act of perception. This is something very counterintuitive that uh, unless you have some very well-founded laboratory or contemplative data to support this, uh, could sound like craziness because this is not the way that the world appears to us. Mm. So that the the basic idea from this new neuroscience is that we create the world uh, in the act of and the moment of our perception, and that those perceptions are going to depend on which hemisphere of the brain is actually paying attention. So creativity, empathy, all kinds of new insights, and this whole feeling of living experience all depend on a three-step dance of shifting dominance between the right and the left hemispheres of the brain. But according to this provocative new theory um, that comes from a man named, uh, developed by Ian McGilchrist, a a scholar at Oxford, uh, the very design of our modern life keeps us stuck in the second step of this three-step dance. And at this point, it's our lives, the world that we inhabit, uh, we ourselves become an abstraction, only a concept to us, mm. to ourselves. Um, so mindfulness can bring us face-to-face. The development of mindfulness, when we develop bare attention in shamatha, by first of all beginning to focus on the distinction between bare attention of physical sensations within the body and then watching as we overlay a conceptual map on those physical sensations. This helps to bring us face-to-face with how we are actually experiencing the world as not the present moment presented to the right hemisphere of the brain, but as this representation of moment-to-moment experience, as it's experienced by the conceptual left hemisphere. So shamatha meditation, by uh, really slowing down our ability to focus and creating stability, uh, allows us to watch that as it's happening and to see this distinction between the way that the right hemisphere uh, appreciates the present moment of experience as a wide, diverse world with full of contradictions contradictions and ambiguities, but it somehow composes a single whole song from it, as opposed to the left hemisphere, which abstracts a single feature from that myriad stimuli and then compares it conceptually with something it already knows, and then so that it can draw some certain conclusion about it. Mm-hmm. The, so shamatha is a way of taking, so this is a, the the difference between the right and left hemispheres and their individual ways of apprehending the world is also can be um, translated, those features can be translated into the whole shamatha model with the right hemisphere approach to the world, the the whole global, seeing everything, uh, me in my context, in the entire ecology. This would be similar to uh, what we call awareness okay. in uh, the shamatha tradition. And in the um, shamatha tradition, we could distinguish the left conceptual approach 
where it abstracts something out of context as attention. We're putting attention on a single thing. Hmm. So both of these are extremely important. Uh, and um, in the so what Ian McGilchrist has done is to do also a cultural analysis and show how periods during our Western culture that have been extraordinarily creative, for instance, the Romantic period, um, have exhibited this three-step dance where something goes appears first in the right hemisphere because that's the, the hemisphere that attends to new things. Then it goes to the left hemisphere where it's conceptually enriched and compared with the past and projections about the future. It's categorized and you're able to, as you abstract it, to manipulate it, to turn it into a, a tool of sorts. Mm. But that's where we get stuck in our contemporary world, according to McGilchrist. And what we need to do is to take the third step, then, of the three-step dance, is where the very conceptually enriched intuition of the right hemisphere gets returned to the right hemisphere, the third step, and there this dead mechanical but conceptually enriched object becomes, again, an event. So that's the basically what happens is an event of perception gets turned into a lifeless object, abstracted, and then the third step, it gets returned again to the right hemisphere, where it has a chance again to become a living event of perception. Shamatha is an extraordinary tool for uh, turning the right hemisphere attention onto the operations of the left hemisphere to watch it as it's happening and not be fooled that that's the only reality that exists. Okay. So it's, it, if I can just oversimplify this, it's like we would be using our whole brain. We would be using all of our capacity as opposed to just part of it with this practice. So that would very much be... Uh, an, another benefit of shamatha other than just simple relaxation. That's right. So the shamatha, um, there are many, many different uses for meditation. Uh, and one of the very great uh, opportunities for using meditation is to develop relaxation. And, of course, that has many, many benefits, and that right. perhaps is the, the way that it's used most these days. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's when the, the original intent of all meditation uh, has been to do something with this tool. So shamatha you could think of as uh, grinding and polishing the lenses to create a microscope or telescope to run laboratory experiments with. And then with this tool of shamatha, we undertake all of these other meditations, the point of which for many meditative traditions is to try to apprehend the truth of who am I and what is this world that I co-create. Right. Interesting. That sounds fascinating. So the enthusiastic response to your weekend intensive that you held at Three Jewels Vancouver last fall, I know has inspired a retreat that you will be leading in Squamish um, this coming March with all the support, instruction, and inspiration needed for anyone to make a leap in the stability and clarity of their attentional skills. 
Doug, perhaps you can speak to us about the benefits of retreat as compared to just simply a home meditative practice and why getting away, getting away from the day-to-day urban life for a meditation retreat is an important part of this. I think it's similar uh, and even more the case than how difficult it is to have a a home yoga practice. Uh, A lot of the yoga teachers that I know... um, can't do a, a home yoga practice either because it takes, you know, a, a more dry discipline to do a full hour and a half of that intensity of uh, practice that you get when you're with a group. Right. Um, actually, you know, I believe that retreat has never been more important in all of human history than it is today, mm. and that's because of being stuck in the second step of that three-step dance that we just talked about. There is such a radical imbalance in our mental and physical ecosystems right now mm-hmm. with the, the constant stimulation of the hedonic treadmill of the media that we're constantly connected to that we don't even know what we're missing. And it's become, you know, this erosion of our ability to uh, stay focused on a, a thing that's from the, what uh, the... Tr- perspective of a meditator would be a certifiable attention deficit disorder uh, in our culture. Right. Um, we don't, the consequences of that are that we, we just uh, are losing so much productivity and uh, in our, when we get together again, we'll go through some of these, the, how the illusion of multitasking, mm. but this is the, the world that we live in and it has come upon us so quickly mm-hmm. uh, that you know, just think, it's only a matter of five years or something since the, the first smartphones were introduced. That's so and how radically, are, in that period, now a third of people are actually checking their, uh, getting online before they get out of bed on their smartphones. Um, so this is what we're, we're having to deal with. So to get away from this, to really develop the kind of attention where we can focus, quiet our minds, and develop this quiescence, requires more now than ever that we leave our day-to-day world in order to do that, I believe. Mm. So can you give us an idea of what people can expect in your upcoming retreat? Yeah, this is going to be an absolutely extraordinary opportunity. Uh, It begins on May, uh, I'm sorry, March 15th uh, at the beautiful Sea to Sky Retreat Center near Squamish, just north of Squamish, and wow, this this place uh, is extraordinary. I, I am really looking forward to spending <laughs> days there. It um, is extraordinarily scenic, looking right into the glaciated peaks of the coast range. It sits above a lake, and the accommodations. It's a, it's a desert. You know, it's a uh, retreat center that built purpose-built retreat center, right. and so this is going to be. Uh, extraordinary place. The facility itself is is just worth going to. Uh, the first four days of this retreat. So the this is I think um, Three Jewels has done a really clever thing here and very a good thing for um, allowing people who are new to this practice to come to this retreat and benefit immediately because the first four days of this practice or of the retreat is going to include all the instruction that you need to do the retreat. So within the, the first four days, I'll essentially be doing uh, the, the workshop. 
the intensive workshop. It, it's you know going to be a little different, um, and a, a great review for and a chance to go deeper for people who were at the workshop last fall. But for people who are just brand new and walking in and and have never even meditated before, basically that first four days is going to give them uh, everything that they need to jump right into the subsequent uh, seven days then of the the real retreat where which is going to focus more on practice um, will be so during that the first four days will will also be experiment you know people will have a chance to explore silence um, how to be together in a group without talking um, and then in the the la- seven days uh, of the the retreat after that of the, uh, the remaining part of the retreat uh, again, we'll be in silence, and, and people will have a chance then with all the conditions and structure to meditate for, you know, six to eight hours a day if they if they choose to. Wow. And during that period, I'll be uh, just teaching one less than one hour a day mm-hmm. uh, and beginning to explore some of uh, another, uh, what, what do you do with this shamatha? Because if shamatha is developing grinding and polishing the lens, what do you do once you have the microscope? And this is the what's called the four applications of mindfulness, where you begin to do a little what's called vipassana uh, with your shamatha. So you begin to investigate uh, what is the nature of um, the physical sensations of the body? What is the nature of my feelings? Are they... Do they exhibit the three marks of existence? Do they are they unchanging or are they constantly changing? Is there some self there? Is there no self? And we go do that through the um, other two applications of mindfulness also, which are um, mental activity and all phenomena. So it's it's be a, a brief introduction to what to do with shamatha, uh, and then there will also be. Uh, individual meetings with all of the retreatants, at least two of those during the, the course of the retreat, so that I have a chance to answer whatever questions may come up during the retreat. And um, the food is going to be great. <laughs> Accommodations are going to be comfortable, and the vista is sublime. Great. Great. Well, it sounds fascinating, and at the end of the show, we'll give a link to a site where people can go if they'd like to sign up or for more information. We're back with Douglas Feenhoff, a popular teacher of Buddhist philosophy and meditation practice. He'll be starting his uh, 2013 North American teaching tour this March with a four-day retreat teaching and a 10-day shamatha retreat through Three Jewels Vancouver up at the Sea to Sky Retreat Center in Squamish. Douglas, I'm curious, how long have you been practicing shamatha, and what have been some of your inspirations and motivations to practice and teach so extensively? I actually got started practicing shamatha, or attempting to practice shamatha, I should say, about uh, 22 years ago when I was undertaking Lam Rim practice. And the uh, I mentioned this quote from one of my great heroes, Pabanka Rinpoche, who was the one who taught that particular Lam Rim uh, in Tibet in 1924. And uh, he emphasized, he's the one that emphasized that uh, without shamatha, everything in the previous three volumes that right. has been taught is going to be beyond you. 
you're mm-hmm. going to be able to realize it. And that's the, the whole point of the law rim is uh, how do you take these concepts and turn them into realizations? What Prabhanka Rinpoche said is what you need is shamatha. So uh, reading that uh, 22 years ago, I decided to try to learn shamatha. And honestly, there just wasn't much available at the right. especially in the tradition that I was practicing in. Mm-hmm. And so a few years ago then, um, I reached a point again where I I understood that uh, I had uh, reached a point in my Vajrayana practice where I needed to develop single-pointed concentration to go beyond where I was. And so I, I just... Uh, realized also that I knew enough at this point that uh, I would recognize the instruction that I needed when I found it. And so that is the uh, particular body of instructions that uh, this particular um, shamatha progression, which uses instruction from three different Buddhist traditions, the Theravadan, uh, Padmasambhava, and Dzogchen, a very unique mm. combination mm-hmm. in this uh, presentation of shamatha, and I found it to be extraordinarily effective. Um, my inspiration uh, for practicing and for teaching uh, has always been my teachers, mm. um, and that's the the great blessing. So Pabanka Rinpoche said, if you want to realize any of these things in the Lam Rim, you have to develop shamatha, but the start of it all is finding a teacher, and honestly, I think one of the most important aspects of finding a teacher and having a teacher is that they can demonstrate these things, they, they can demonstrate the potential of this human life to you, and prove it to you in their presence, and then after that, uh, you have no choice but to try to live up to what they have just poured into you, and as uh, my teacher, Geshe Michael Roach, said, uh, once you have these instructions, don't let the lineage die with you. So that has always been a great inspiration to me. Right. Well, and to that end, we're very happy that you're coming back to Vancouver. Now, I understand you'll be giving a free public talk at Banyan Books on the Thursday evening on March the 14th. Do you know what you'll be speaking about there? Yes, that will be a book talk. Uh, oh, great. Discussing uh, my book, White Lama, which is a biography of Theos Bernard, who's the seminal figure introducing both uh, Hatha Yoga and Tibetan Buddhism to the United States. Very exciting story of uh, his journey to Tibet being recognized as a very special incarnation of a high uh, Tibetan teacher and given the highest. Uh, tantric initiations by the highest tantric lamas and coming back to the United States uh, with a treasure trove of of scriptures and becoming a huge celebrity here before he disappeared without a trace. It's I've actually read your book, Douglas, and it's fascinating. So for listeners in Vancouver, please come see Douglas Feenhoff in person at Banyan Books on March 14th. I'm sure you can pick up a copy there of White Lama, and perhaps, Douglas, you can sign them, <laughs> not to put too much pressure on you. There is still some room in the Shamata retreat, although space is limited, and it's starting to fill up fast. Uh, you can book your tickets on Eventbrite. Just uh, look up Shamata retreat, or for more information, 
go to the uh, website at shamata. That's S H A M A T H A R E T R E A T. That's shamata retreat dot wordpress dot com. And Douglas, I'm looking forward to uh, the opportunity to see you in Vancouver, but also invite our listeners to come see you at Banyan to sign up for the retreat, or if they can't carve out all that time, I know the first four days are coming over a weekend, right? So perhaps that will be a little bit easier for people to attend. Before we let you go, do you have any final advice for our listeners? Uh, Yes, I guess uh, that is that uh, to establish a daily practice, first of all, get some instruction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't worry about place or time, because both of those are not things that you need more of. It's just a reallocation. And there's a the biggest obstacle to medica- meditation. There's a technical term for it, and that means uh, in Tibetan it's called laziness. So that just means get to it, do it, enjoy it, and do it on a foundation of relaxation. Nice. Well, we look forward to your visit back to Vancouver. For more information, listeners can also check the website of Three Jewels, which is www.3jewelsvancouver.com. We're going to be leaving you now with I Sense Your Presence by Shimshai. We thank you all for listening, and please visit our website for more podcasts at www.drishtipoint.ca. Thank you so much, Doug, for being with us today. It's been a great pleasure, Sherry. Wonderful. And we'll see you when you're in Vancouver. So thank you again. And for our listeners, you've been listening to Drishti Point on Co-op Radio at 100.5 FM. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.